0: Now, if you'll find your Bible and open it up or turn it on and scroll to Romans chapter 6. Let's stand as we open God's Word together. Romans chapter 6. We'll be in chapters 6 and 8, but I want us to begin by reading just the first few verses together in chapter 6 to lay kind of a, a foundation for where we're going with this message. Passion and power is what we've been looking at finding our identity in the crucified and resurrected Lord. For so many people, the gospel is something they check off because one day, praise God, I was saved by grace through faith, now I'm going to heaven, and we think that's the ending point. That's just the beginning of it. And so, What does it mean to live it out? Passion and power in the real world. Let's look at Romans 6.1. It says, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may multiply Absolutely not, some translations say, God forbid, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. Passion and power in the real world. Let's ask the Spirit of God to teach us His truth this morning. Father, it's my desire that Christ would be glorified. Father, that the body of Christ would be equipped this morning. And that those who don't know Christ would come to an understanding of the gospel today. Lord, if any of that's going to take place, it's going to be by the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And so, Lord, we ask that both have authority in this place and in our hearts today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. You ever heard the phrase, getting down to brass tacks? Uh, about 10 years ago, I even titled a, a sermon talking about the basics of the faith. as getting down to brass tacks tax. That phrase comes from a couple of different uh, backgrounds. Some people have kind of looked in where did that phrase come from, and, and uh, one story is told of how they used to put brass tacks where they would measure cloth in places you would purchase cloth, and, and so getting down to brass tacks was getting down to the basics of measurement. Uh, but going back further, back in, into the 1800s, uh, that phrase was used when really brass tacks were just known as being used in furniture upholstery. And they still are, aren't they? I mean, there are a lot of you that have furniture that is upholstered in, in the upholstery. Maybe the leather is held onto the furniture with brass tacks. I had a friend, uh, many of you know uh, this friend named Scott, and he had a pet snake, a ball python. And we were over at his house, and he was sitting in a recliner that was held together with brass tacks the leather was held onto the recliner with brass tacks and he had had this ball python the snake going around him and and when it went around one time behind him it didn't come out the other side and we realized it had gone down into the recliner and it had gotten so deep that you could reach down there and barely feel it but then it had wrapped around the framework of the recliner and scott's mother had an absolute fit you are going to get that snake, and you're going to get that snake out of that chair and in its aquarium before I go to sleep tonight, which ultimately led to having to take this recliner apart, pulling out the brass tacks. And it was so hard to get those brass tacks back in and just right. If you've ever uh, done furniture upholstery, maybe you're a pro at that. But I remember he had to take the brass tacks out of the chair to get where the stake was and, and get it out from under there because the tacks are what held it all together, so to speak. Now, when we think of furniture like that, you think the, the, the structure, the, the support of that chair is not in the strength of the brass tacks. That's just kind of what, what holds the upholstery. That's what makes it work. That's what makes it functional in the real world. I want you to think in terms of those brass tacks when it comes to what we talk about when we talk about how to live the Christian life in the real world. The gospel framework, that which we have saying, Jesus Christ is the foundation for all that we believe. The gospel is foundation for everything we embrace, and the gospel needs to become something that is the center of your very life. That's what we've been looking at for the past couple of weeks. But the Holy Spirit of God is what helps hold all that together. It's how it is lived out in our lives. We have the truth of God, but we've got the Spirit of God helping us understand and live it out. Now, I'm not a pragmatist. I'm an idealist. In other words, I, I don't claim that I embrace Christianity because it works. And I I have problems with pragmatism even when it comes to areas of politics. Like, well, if it works, it must be true. There are a lot of things that might work for you but may not be right for you. And so I'm an idealist. In other words, I believe that it works because it is true, not it's true because it works. Now, the truth of the gospel needs to flesh itself out in our lives. The gospel... Works, but it's the Holy Spirit who has to empower the work of the gospel in our lives. You know, the, there's a, a tragedy in the world when we think of maybe this past week, some of you heard of the, the death of a man by the name of Stephen Hawking. He understood the truths of physics in many ways, many of the truths of physics. Uh, understanding things about gravity and Thrust and that energy in a closed system remains constant. He could explain, you know, Newton's laws of motion. He understood physics like no one else, but he couldn't tell you why that mattered for eternity. In fact, he still came back to explain to people who had used some of his arguments to even defend creation and Christianity. He came back to say, No, 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 don't get it wrong. I am an atheist. And it's a tragedy to understand and have so much knowledge, but not know why it matters, or if it even matters, for eternity. Let me tell you a greater tragedy. A greater tragedy would be to understand the truths of Scripture, to understand the truths of the Gospel, to to be theologically sound, to know your Bible backwards and forwards, but not know why it matters. Not know how to practice it and live it out in light of eternity. What does our identity in Christ, what does his passion, what does his power mean in your life? How do you live that out? I want to share a couple of things with you this morning that I think the church often neglects. Not every church, but certainly a lot of churches neglect these truths. A lot of Christians neglect these two truths. And so I pray this morning that maybe you would write these down, that you would study these further, and that you would understand that our identity in Christ hinges on understanding these. And the first one is this this morning, saving grace We've been talking about God's saving grace. Saving grace gives us liberty, not license. Saving grace gives us liberty, not license. When I look at Romans chapter 6, I love the sense of security that I have in Christ. When I look at like verses 7 through 9, look back at the chapter with me and look down a few verses. Chapter 6, verse 7, Since a person who has died is freed, that's liberty, right? Is freed from sin's claims. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. I believe that I will live with Christ in this life. I believe that I will live with Jesus Christ in eternity because I have been identified with Christ in his death and resurrection. Those truths that we have looked at over the past couple of weeks are so real to me that I believe that I'm going to spend eternity with Jesus Christ because we know, verse 9, that Christ having been raised from the dead, no longer dies, death no longer rules over him. And if I am in him, death no longer rules over me and I have nothing to fear. That understanding, however, should be something that gives me liberty and not license. Not license. Not not what I would call a false sense of security. If I begin to think the grace of God is license to sin. If I begin to do as some erroneously have done say well as long as I have been saved by grace then I can do whatever I want to do. I can sin all I want to sin. Now that may be true in that God changes your want to and you don't want to sin. You you sin more than you want to sin. But if I think that it gives me a license to sin, I have misunderstood grace and I'm living with a false sense of security like the person who kind of gets on the airplane Now we just kind of tune them out unless unless flying is new to you. And when they go over all the instructions and they give you the good news that your seat cushion can be used as a flotation device, right? And that's made you feel really good when you know you're flying over Arizona. Man, I am so glad that when we crash into that mountain, at least I've got my seat cushion. I'm just going to relax now. Well, that would be a false insecurity. And in the same way, someone who is holding on to grace, thinking that it is a license to sin, they don't know what it means to truly be in Christ. And so he says, shall we continue in sin in verse 1? That grace may abound, can we so abuse grace? God forbid, how can we that have died to sin continue to live in it? The Libertines at that time would say, hey, if God gets glory because of the grace that I need, then the more I sin, the more grace I need and the more God is glorified, so I'm just going to continue to sin more so that I might glorify God with my sins. And he says, God forbid, you don't understand what it means to be in Christ, dead to sin and alive in Christ. 2 Corinthians five seventeen. we talk about it all the time, right? If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things are passing away. All things are becoming New as a result of your death in Christ. So we see in these first few verses that baptism then becomes an outward picture of what is taking place inwardly. When he says, Are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus, I believe, is speaking of your spiritual baptism being placed in Christ, were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in youness of life. Now, when you are experiencing water baptism, it's not that the water is washing your sins away. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can do that. It's that it's picturing that It's picturing a funeral. You have died to the old man, and you have been raised to walk in newness of life. And that's why we refer to these verses every time we baptize someone. And just as it's important for you to find your identity in Christ spiritually, a public identity in Christ takes place with water baptism. But know that it is an outward picture of what should be an inward reality for the person who has identified with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ reminding us that saving grace has now set me free to walk in newness of life. It is not a license to sin. You have a new identity. Look back at verses 5 and 6 in this chapter. For if we have been joined with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. If our old man dies with Christ, then a new you comes alive in Christ, Right? For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that sin's dominion over the body, the control that sin has in your life, may be abolished so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. We should all be spiritual abolitionists who are practicing what we preach day in and day out, seeing ourselves set free from the laws of sin and death and alive in Christ, where changes begin to take place in our life because the old man is dead. I was speaking to a pastor a few weeks ago, and he was talking about uh, believing in the potential of his church. And he made this statement, and I hesitate to share it with the body of Christ. I wouldn't want you to think I've ever made a statement like this, and I haven't, but... I probably empathized with this pastor when he said it. He said, our church, we're about three funerals away from God really doing something awesome. (laughs) Some of you are laughing because you've been in those churches, right? We're about three funerals away from God doing something really awesome. And what he was saying is there's about three older individuals here, who are walking in their carnality, who are causing problems among the leadership, who are bringing division in the church, who are against everything that we have a vision for, but they're probably not going to be with us much longer. And and so we're about, because they have so much influence, but we're about three funerals away from really seeing God work. Now, practically speaking, I I empathize and and sympathize with a pastor who may, may go through something like that. But I believe all of us as Christ followers need to have a funeral. We need to every day say, listen, I am one funeral away from God really doing something great in my life as I understand that my old man has died and I need to be reminded of that constantly and that now I have come alive in Christ to live for the glory of God. Grace is not a license for me to continue in that old life. Grace is the power of God to crucify the old life that I might come alive and live a new life in Christ. It's the liberty, look at verses 10 and 11, the liberty to reckon yourselves, that's a good southern word, isn't it? Reckon yourselves dead to sin. For in that he died, verse 10 says, he died to sin once for all. But in that he lives Speaking of Jesus, he lives to God. So you too, consider yourselves. Some translations say reckon yourselves. Dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. That which I've already experienced positionally because I am in Christ, I am to live out practically by the power that saved me. And so many times we're afraid to do something for God. We're afraid to tempt something for God. We're afraid to to seek after doing away with that old life because we don't think we can live a new life. We don't think we're able. We become afraid that we might fail in trying to live for him. Paul told Timothy, God didn't give you a spirit of fear. He gave you a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now, your sin that you struggle with may not be premeditated. In other words, you may not have woke up this morning or any day this past week and said, you know what, here's a list of three sins I think I want to get involved in today. This first one, man, that one's really going to be fun. I'm going to have to, man, I'm going to have to go to church forever to make up for that one, right? You probably don't have... Premeditated, preplanned, I'm going to commit these sins today, but many of you have predetermined that you're going to sin. When you make statements like this, you're using grace as a license to sin. when you say, "You know what? I can't beat this. I'll never beat this. You know how I am. I will never change. I will always be like this. This temper, I'm, I'm just always going to have this temper, and I'm going to lose my temper with the people around me, people I work with, people I live with. There's some young men here saying, this lust, I'll never get victory over this lust. It's just who I am and I'm going to let it define me. Rather than seeing your identity in Christ and seeing that the grace that saves you is the grace that can crucify your old man, you're predetermined to live in that lust. This mouth, I'll never get control over this mouth. I'm just going to say things I shouldn't say that are going to get me in trouble again and again and again. That's just who I am. We're using grace as a license to sin. This addiction, well, this addiction is impossible for me to ever overcome because human addictions have those kinds of strongholds on people. So I'll never get victory over this addiction in my life. This pride, well, I'm just a proud person. You know, we all battle with the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, and I've got a double portion of pride, and I'm always going to be a proud person. That's just who I am. I'm always going to pout about things, I'm always going to whine about things. Your sin may not be premeditated, but for many of us, it's predetermined because we've already determined that we're not going to get victory over it, and we're using grace as a license to sin. Now, if passion, and identifying with Christ's passion, his death, it speaks of the death of the old me and the grace of Christ that saves me, is the grace that crucifies my old man, then then where is that grace that brings me to life and empowers me? It's in identifying with our resurrected Lord. It says that as we were buried with him in baptism, we were raised to walk in newness of life. And this is where the work of the Holy Spirit comes in and the role of the Holy Spirit. So let me make a second statement. The first one is fundamental. Remember the first statement. Saving grace gives us liberty, not license. Got it? Two of you. All right. Saving grace gives us liberty, not license. Get it? Good. All right. Secondly, the Spirit-filled life empowers us to live victoriously. The Spirit-filled life empowers us, empowers me to live victoriously. Now we're going to flip over to Romans chapter 8. Now let me remind you, if you haven't read Romans chapter 7, that Paul shares his frustration because he says, now I know what I ought to do, but I end up doing things I I shouldn't do. And that which I shouldn't do, that's what I end up doing. And, and, And I'm struggling here, and he says, who's going to deliver me from this desperate state that I'm in and then he says thanks be to God through Jesus Christ and then in chapter 8 we read that verse there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ thank God for that we could stop right there with verse 1 right no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ look at verse 2 why because the spirit the spirit's law of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death You've been set free. Let's confess that this morning. I've been set free. Say that with me. I've been set free. What the law could not do since it was limited by the flesh, we still live in this fleshly body, right? We haven't received a glorified body yet. He says God did it. He condemns sin in the flesh by sending His own Son in flesh like ours under sin's domain and as a sin offering in order that the law's requirements would be accomplished in us who do not, here's the key, walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. It's learning to walk in the Spirit. It's a New Testament way of life. It's a Spirit-filled way of life. For those, verse 5 says, whose lives are according to the flesh. Think about the things of the flesh. That's where their mind is. That's where their heart is. But those whose lives are according to the Spirit, about the things of the Spirit. For the mindset of the Spirit, I'm sorry, the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. For the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit itself to God's laws, for it is unable to do so. Those whose lives are in the flesh are unable to please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God lives in you. But anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. In other words, if you belong to Christ, you have the Spirit of Christ. It's not that you got Jesus and one day you need to get the Holy Spirit. He says if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you do not belong to Christ. Now, sometimes we need to understand what it is that we have in Christ. If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, Then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. There's a lot to unpack there, but verses four and five remind us that it's about a Christian walk. He says we're to be walking in the spirit, and our mind has to be set on the things of the spirit. In Galatians chapter five, where the Apostle Paul is saying there's a better way than, than legalistic standards of righteousness, and there's a better way than, than the, using grace as a license to sin. He talks about the Spirit-filled life. And he says, if we walk according to the Spirit, we will no not ever fulfill the desires of the flesh. You cannot at the same time be walking in the Spirit and satisfying the desires of the flesh. It says in verse 17, Galatians 5, 17, it says the two are at war, the flesh and the spirit are at war with one another, and you're going to join forces with one or the other. And so if you choose to walk in the spirit, you at that time will not be fulfilling the desires of the flesh, but it's a choice you have to make every day. Jesus prayed that we would be sanctified or made holy, made right by the truth, that's the truth of God's Word. And so you cannot neglect God's Word and talk about the Spirit-filled life. And so he says, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your Word is truth. But he also promised that his Holy Spirit would lead us into all truth. And then he promised that the Spirit would baptize us and empower us to live the truth. To live it out in our loves. And so we're to live and to speak the truth. He reminded us of this in Acts 1-8 before his ascension when he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And as a result of that, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. You will be empowered to be a witness both in your character and in your calling. In your character by producing the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And in your calling, doing what God called you to do as a witness for him, you will live that out in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet we hear this and it's all theological and it's sound and we don't understand how do I apply this in my everyday life? What difference is that going to make where I have to go to work on Monday? What difference is that going to make when I'm around those same friends at school on Monday? What difference is it going to make on Friday night and Saturday? Getting down to brass tacks, where does the rubber meet the road, so to speak? Ephesians 5 helps us with that. Ephesians 5, chapter 5, describes the Christian life as a, and, and the spirit-filled life as a walk in love, as a walk in truth, as a walk in wisdom. Where do we get this love? Where do we get this truth? Where do we get this wisdom that empowers us? to live out our faith, he gives us a wonderful piece of insight in chapter 5 and verse 18, where it says, Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that phrase, be filled with the Holy Spirit, it's a present active phase, meaning be in a present condition of actively being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not a one-and-done deal. It's not, you know what, man, I was filled with the Holy Spirit at age 18, and ever since then, I have just lived such a life above sin, it's been unbelievable. Listen, it's continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's being a channel through which the Spirit of God flows through. And so we have to constantly yield ourselves to this. not drunk with wine, he says, but filled with the Spirit. It's also not a lot of things that we would consider to be good things. It's Serving God and committing yourself to serve God doesn't mean you're necessarily filled with the Holy Spirit. Going to church on a regular basis doesn't mean you're a Spirit-filled Christian. Boy, it certainly facilitates, and I hope and pray that it enhances that, but you can go to church and be lost, or you can go to church and be an empty Christian. doesn't mean that you're filled with the Spirit. Sometimes the devil's biggest temptation in my life, if I can just confess this today, is not to get me to do bad things in the flesh. Sometimes the devil's biggest temptation in my life, and I have to confess it was even a temptation from the moment I woke up this morning, sometimes his biggest temptation is to get me to do good things in the flesh. Because if I can convince myself that I'm going to be better and I'm going to do good and I'm going to do it in my own strength, then I'll fall short every time and I'll live a life of frustration. And You want to know why the Christian life gets frustrated? You're like, why do I keep falling into the sin again? Why why do I I, I commit myself to serve in various areas and I grow weary in well doing? It's because we try to do so much in our flesh. We We try to be our own man. We try to do whatever we can in our own strength. We're not to be associating those things or equating those things with the Spirit-filled life. The Spirit-filled life, I referred a moment ago, that uh, I referred to this passage in Romans 6 where we are baptized by the Spirit into Christ. The Spirit-filled life is not the same thing as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, I thank God for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And, and some people like to refer to that as a second work of grace. I love what Adrian Rogers says. He says the second work of grace was me finding out everything that God gave me in the first work of grace when I was in Christ. As the Bible says in him, I have everything I need for life and for godliness. I've, I've read a wonderful book called They Found the Secret, though, and I believe that there are a lot of believers that some point after they were saved, they come to a moment of crisis, and they refer to that as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I don't, it doesn't matter to me what language you use Or when you think that happens, just understand that having experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that you're a Spirit-filled Christian. It means the Spirit of God lives inside of you, but it doesn't mean you're a Spirit-filled Christian. Say, how do you know that? Because Paul told the church at Corinth, you were all baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. You've all received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And yet he was confronting them for their carnality. The the church members, the born-again believers in Corinth, he says, you received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but you're not living it. As as a matter of fact, he even says in 1 Corinthians 13, he presupposes that you could have all of these spiritual gifts and have not love, which is the first aspect of the what? Fruit of the Spirit. And so it's possible to have these spiritual gifts, and we cannot associate being gifted and having gifts as the Spirit-filled life we've all been given spiritual gifts spiritual gifts can also be faked jesus said many will say to me on that day lord lord didn't we prophesy in your name didn't we cast out demons in your name didn't we and they name all of these phenomenal things man you know that had to be real their salvation had to be real They had to be spirit-filled. Man, look at the anointing that was on their life. And he will say to them on that day, depart from me. I never knew you. And so many times I'm amazed at how many people can look at a particular preacher or TV evangelist, you name it, and you say, man, boy, that has to be a spirit-filled man of God. And I'm like, you haven't really walked with him or her, you don't know if they're filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The biblical word for evidence is fruit, not gift. The fruit of the Spirit has to be seen in your life. And so he says, listen, you can speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not love. And so the spiritual gifts doesn't make you a Spirit-filled Christian. What then is the Spirit-filled life? The Spirit-filled life is embraced the same way our salvation is embraced. It's just an ongoing experience. Salvation, you receive and you pass from death into life. The Spirit-filled life, you continually and daily. Let me give you this, and I would encourage you to write it down, but Spirit-filled life is daily, continually surrendering control of your life to Christ. Daily and continually surrendering control of your life to Christ, and by faith, asking and receiving the Spirit's empowerment to do the will of God and or to know the will of God and to walk in it. That's what the Spirit-filled life is all about. It is an ongoing thing of continually surrendering control of your life by faith, asking, and receiving. Why do we say by faith, asking, and receiving? Because Jesus said, how much more am I willing to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And so it's starting each day saying, Lord, I know that my identity is in your death and resurrection, but I've got to live this out in a tough place to live it today with my family, with my school, with my workplace. It's not easy to live a Spirit-filled life. And so, Lord, right now, the best I know, if there's any uh, sin, unconfessed sin in my life, I confess that to you, but I ask you to fill me afresh and anew with your Holy Spirit. And he says he gives us the Spirit as we ask. Now, the Spirit, again, if you've been saved, Romans 8, 9, has, the Spirit of God has taken up residence in your life. But just because I invite you to my house this afternoon doesn't mean that I open up every room and say, have... You rule and reign in my home. And just because the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in your life doesn't mean that you have given him complete control and surrender to every area. A spirit-filled life is saying, Lord, I give it all to you today, and I ask for your empowerment to reflect your character, to be your witness, to do your will to walk with you in this world. I've got a testimony here. This This is my experience, and so I do not build your truth or or god's truth on my experience but i just a lot of people like to share their experience when it comes to what it means to live the spirit-filled life here's my experience and i believe it was an illumination of the word of god in my life when i was in college for the first time in my life i was exposed to some of the most phenomenal things when it came to the work of the holy spirit some of it seemed so real and some of it quite honestly seemed so fake some of it seemed so powerful, and some of it seemed so manipulated. S- some of it seemed so gospel centered, some of it seemed so man centered. And I remember staying awake in my room because I had heard that what a preacher needs to do have you ever heard this language? I'd heard what a preacher needs to do is he needs to pray through. And so my parents had built me a, my own room and bathroom, kind of my, my basement apartment in our home. It was kind of a dungeon. But I went to my bedroom one night, and I said, I'm going to pray through. Lord, I, man, I want to see angels. I want to cast out demons. I want to part the waters. I want to speak in languages that I can't even comprehend myself. Lord, I want to see the phenomenal. Show me the phenomenal. Man, I'm going to pray through, and I'm going to stay here until I see the miraculous. Until I see an angel from heaven until I speak with the tongues of angels, and I begin to pray. I began to seek God's face. I began to cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, I want more than what I've been experiencing. I began to seek and to beg and pray, and I was going to pray through, and it just seemed like heaven was silent. I confessed every sin that the Holy Spirit would bring to my mind. Lord, I give you permission to do anything. I'm going to pray through until I see the phenomenal. I'm going to see lightning in my bedroom. I'm going to see the miraculous. And I grew so weary that I got to a point of exhaustion. And I laid my head back on my bed and I said, okay, Lord, okay. Father, all I know is your word is true and your spirit is real. And Father, I give you permission to do anything you want to in my life. I give you permission to do anything you want to in my life. And if I've ever heard the voice of God audibly, it had been at that moment. It was so real. So real. I just believe it was His Spirit bearing witness with my spirit that I was a child of God. And He said, That's all I want. That's all I want. I want permission to do in your life anything I want to do in your life. Because it's not for your glory for my glory and from then on I began to understand something that wasn't superficial something that wasn't manipulated oh have I seen the phenomenal sense many many times have I seen the miraculous absolutely but it wasn't because I had to experience something it was because by faith I said God here I am whatever you want to do however you want to use me folks That's the best prayer other than to turn from sin and self and trust in Christ as Savior that I could ever pray. And I pray it on a regular basis. Father, fill me afresh in you, your Holy Spirit. I give you permission to do whatever you want to do in my life. Use me how you want to. Here I am, Lord. I give my life to you. Lead me in your truth. Help me to understand it. Empower me to live it. And He answers that prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. And life in him, and that that life is appropriated by the work of the Holy Spirit. Lord, your word says a wicked generation seeks a sign. Lord, we just want to seek Jesus today. Want to talk more about Jesus, want our lives to reflect Jesus more. Be bold in our witness. Lord, we'll leave the phenomenal up to you. We thank you for the most powerful truth that you have died for our sin and risen from the grave and you empower us to live the resurrected life. We thank you. We praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.